Hey everybody, it's good to talk to you again. I'll say to you instead of with you because uh, you're not talking back. Wait a minute. Don't talk to strangers. Uh, isn't what? there a song? Don't talk to strangers. Don't talk. Don't. That was uh, Dio, hey. not Dio, uh, Blackmore when he mellowed out there for a while. Uh, I think there was an 80s. Yes, there was a, a beboppy version yeah. as well. Don't talk to strangers. Yeah, anyway. Baby, don't you talk. <laughs> what the hell are we bringing this up for? I don't know, man. Hey, guys, what's the point? The fuck is the point? So we're talking today, well, to older school Mormons, maybe. If you recall the infamous 17 points of the true church that were often found on a little card that you could carry in your pocket, right, David? And David and I had yeah. these on our missions, and they were these great proof points, and they were so cool because they were out of the New Testament only. Like, if all you believed in was the Bible, you could use these points to show people, at least from the perspective of a Christian church, that, hey, yes. if you're looking for the right Christian church, these 17 points tell you what has to be in it to be God's true church, right? And, and as I recall, we would use it, like you said, specifically when we would get an argument about well you're not christian or you're uh -huh. not bi biblically based you know arguments like that and we'd say ha -ha. yes we'd we reach are back in our yeah right. and pull this card out and say i got my ammo right here yeah yeah and you know i didn't use them a lot on my mission although i carried them around as kind of a reference because i served in japan where christianity was pretty rare and so there wasn't a lot of bashing, you know, or trying to prove through the Bible, shit like that. But I'm sure you used them a lot, David, because you were all the time. I even had the cassette recording of, of his talk. Yes. And used that quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. So we'll get into that in the episode today because there's a lot to say about these 17 points. <laughs> so with that little taster thrown in front of you, how about, Dave, a little bit of... LDS Church in the news. <laughs> Chloroseptic, my friend. Chloroseptic. It gets longer and longer every time I do that. I really do want to break into some, like some metal music with that in the back. I might, I might whip up something musical. I might get a little creative and throw it out there one of these days. We might change our tune to LDS Church in the News. Instead of having like a newsy sound, we might have a little metal sound. How would that be? Yeah. That might be fun. On Sunday morning? Hell yeah. <laughs> Perfect time for metal. All right, guys. Here's the news. Maxwell Institute series helps readers see the Book of Mormon through new eyes. Mmm. Yes, yes. As he contemplated Elder Jeffrey R. Holland's address at the 2018 Neil A. Maxwell lecture, Spencer Fluman felt prompted to ask, what's next? So we ought to actually talk about Holland's, Holler and Holland or Holler and Jowls, whatever we end up for his nickname. Uh, we ought to talk about his 2018 Neil A. Maxwell lecture because it's a treat. Well, I, I guess it's helpful to say in that address to the Institute, the Neil A. Maxwell Institute, Holland basically tells them to use a different style of apologetics. That's where a new, new apologetics kind of begins there. He reminds them of their duty to basically lie for the Lord. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's quite the address. Uh, it's pretty, pretty fucked up. So anyway... Fluman, the executive director of Brigham Young University's Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship, said he pondered the Apostles' call for the Institute's scholars to, quote, consecrate their academic work for the broader body of Latter-day Saints, unquote. Maxwell Institute's mission is to, quote, gather and nurture disciple scholars, in other words, apologetics or apologists, <laughs> integrating <laughs> academic research and faith to enrich study of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So integrating academic research and make-believe cognitive dissonance with feelings <laughs> to to enrich the study of the gospel with these it responses, makes it a lot more fun yes it does it makes it true too because it's feelings 
With these responsibilities in mind and churchwide study of the Book of Mormon only a year away, Fluman envisioned a series that could enhance Latter-day Saints' engagement with the 2020 Come Follow Me curriculum. He and his team of fellow editors invited 12 scholars to write a, a series called The Book of Mormon, Brief Theological Introductions comprising a dozen volumes of about 150 pages or less that would examine what the Institute's namesake, the late elder Neil A. Maxwell of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, called the Book of Mormon's, quote, divine architecture, unquote. Said Maxwell, <laughs> there is so much Sorry. more in the Sorry. Book of Mormon that we have yet to discover. All the rooms in this mansion need to be explored. Of course, when Maxwell said that, he wasn't aware of the late war. Uh <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that explains a lot of the structure, doesn't it? So they go through here, and there's different headings. I'm obviously not going to read this whole thing. The significance of the structure of the Book of Mormon, the vocabulary that's used, questioning borrowed. assumptions. Borrowed. Exactly. Borrowed. Yeah. What else here? Seeking Christ in Scripture. Uh, so anyway, basically a completely moot project if these 12 scholars admitted the obvious correlation to the late war, right? So kind of funny, complete waste of some of that hundred billion. Prolific (laughs) mental masturbation. Yes, yes. All you have to do is look at the faces that they snapshot of these 12 scholars as they show their studies. And yeah, it looks like they're masturbating behind the podium. (laughs) They look pretty happy. (laughs) <laughs> yes. <laughs> and pretty self-deceived. So So I was anyway. cracking up. I when you said the come follow me concept or what is it? The, yeah, yeah. I get these images. Yeah, it's part of, you know, when you lose your mind, you start to see things. I saw <laughs> Neil Nelson, Rusty Nell turning backward with his finger saying come follow me and he's falling off of a cliff. And I saw the people eagerly running after him. Come follow me. Anyway, <laughs> I I cracked myself up. I guess. Oh, Whatever. so you saw part two of Lehi's vision, is what you're saying? Yes. When you let go of the iron rod and just say, "Hey, come follow me." Yeah. Or you actually follow the iron rod, and and it oh. shows you where it really goes. Yeah. We all know where the iron rod's going in one case. Uh, with Rusty Nell. Uh, anyway, bad joke uh, that I on won't... the floor <laughs> to his oh, knee to okay. his knees. <laughs> oh God. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, do your balls hang low. Do they dangle <laughs> to, to and fro? <laughs> <laughs> David, with that short bit of LDS Church in the news, how about we jump into a little of, uh, you know, for me, for everyone, for your information. We are in the year 1906. San Francisco is in flames. Mm. That was our last entry. Yeah. And so let's jump into July. The first presidency in Quorum of the Twelve and presiding bishopric, began consistently using water and not wine in their own sacrament. Uh-oh. Oh, that, what, what? However, most apostles of that time preferred to continue using wine in the temple. This The sacrament service was held in the temple. So just don't spill any on that nice white carpet. Hold on a second. The sacrament... Okay, I... I thought for a moment you were suggesting it was only done in the temple. No, you're saying it was no, no, also no, no, no. done no, no. in the temple. Right. Just with the 12 and, right. and yeah, okay. presidency. So they used uh, wine for themselves, probably a, a fine year. <laughs> sure. But they didn't use and, wine for the members anymore. Okay. And remember, more is better. Um, yeah. I, I don't feel the spirit yet. Give me a little more. Okay. Oh, oh, there it is. Uh, there it is. That there makes sense. Spirit. So let's go back to this subject yet again. This is unbelievable. August 1st, at a fast meeting in the first ward, Sister Jarrett speaks in tongues oh, and, no. and prophesies. Oh, my Whoops. God. I thought that was gone. Sisters don't prophesy, they never have. 
Didn't he say tr- last time, and you referenced that it was like uh, the first sign of spiritual gifts going away? Yes. Yes. But I think he yeah. was just talking about tongues, not prophecy yeah. in that. Gift of tongues. Yeah. Okay. So let, let's talk about the gift of tongues. And I was always curious about when this might have happened. 1906, August 30th, after the 1930s, the LDS leaders redefined the gift of tongues to be the ability to learn an unfamiliar language. Such uh, as Japanese. Okay, that's when rather, it started. Okay. Rather than spontaneous speaking of unknown tongues. So that's what we called it as a gift of the spirit, as a missionary mm. going to a foreign land. Right. That's the gift of tongues. If you can learn, you know, Japanese, French, German, right, whatever. right. Well, so maybe primarily for our younger listeners, I don't know, maybe I'm misjudging here. The gift of tongues, there is some mention of it in the Bible. Maybe I'm thinking of the wrong thing, the day of Pentecost, when they spoke and everybody from different nationalities understood what they were saying. Mm -hmm. Is that referenced explicitly as the gift of tongues in the day of Pentecost, though? I don't know that it was. I'm trying to remember. I don't think it's that, right? It's the idea of what you just said. The Spirit's on you, and all of a sudden you speak in this unknown language, and it's somehow proof that the Spirit is in your body, right? Because you're, like, speaking this crazy shit. With the Spirit, yeah. Um, Well, I had a a girlfriend when I was 19, definitely had the gift of tongues. Uh, All right. You know, it's funny because I was thinking of making that joke, something similar, and you beat me to it. So, you know. Yeah. It's nice to know that our depravity runs parallel. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's wrap up 1906. Joseph F. Smith, this guy's everywhere, pleads guilty to unlawful cohabitation for which he pays a $300 fine. There it is. That's it. So Smith is still living in polygamy, basically. Yep. yep. He, and he pleads guilty. So, yeah. Okay, yep. here's your money. Here's your fine. Here's, here, here's your tithing money I'm using to pay this fine. All right. Now that we paid the fine, Wilma, remember, you're on Tuesdays and Thursdays. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is, this is some random shit here. I don't know what's going on. 1907, September 18th, front page headline of the Logan Republican. Bear Lake monster appears. Leviathan <laughs> comes from lake, devours a horse while men at shoot at it. <laughs> what the hell is going on there? Oh my god! Oh. <laughs> Bear Lake monster, and we referenced that before a few weeks ago. Oh my god! So this this oh. was like uh, Nessie. <laughs> <laughs> the Mormon Nessie. The Mormon Nessie. Messy. Oh. 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 Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank six, you. Yes. Francis M. Lyman instructs the newly ordained Ivans, quote, the 12 are special witnesses of Jesus Christ and should be able to testify that he lives even as if he had been seen by them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's pretty lame. (laughs) You need to be able to lie that well as if you had actually seen him. (laughs) That's a special witness. Yes. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. We have one entry from 1908. That's all? George Reynolds. That's it. George Reynolds is legally committed to Utah Insane Asylum. (laughs) Was he... First Mormon general authority to be hospitalized for mental for mental illness in a mental institution. Yeah, yeah you know what I think happened? His cognitive dissonance broke. It finally broke his mind. Yeah, <laughs> He's like, I can't. I can't. I go right down to the next year. We got another one at conference, October what? 3rd, general conference. Apostle George Albert Smith stopped speaking after three minutes as he begins to tremble and perspire. Apostle yeah. Reed Smoot two weeks earlier as Smith's mental trouble. So we got a lot of people losing their minds. This is just interesting. The same year, 1909, presiding bishopric instructions that as near as circumstances will permit, boys will be ordained as follows. Deacons at 12, teachers at 15, oh. priests at 18. Ah. Okay. So and they were so, older back then. 
so the priests that, and this deacons. is something that was different and kept changing and changing we're making adjustments never mind it's not <laughs> a problem There's, let's finish on this one the next year 1910 joseph f smith again instructs bishops and stake presidents that payment of tithing and observance of the word of wisdom are necessary for uh, Mormons to obtain temple recommend. So they switched again. Scene one, Apple take two. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> the, how, how many times? Is that the third time that switched back and forth? <laughs> yeah, I need a take three. I need a take three and a take four soundbite. <laughs> Now this this next one is is kind of sad and and troubling and okay Smith also says suicides who are willful should not be buried in temple robes or have public funeral but Hold local on. check this shit out check this shit out local authorities must be the judges of their state of mind when committing the act well how the fuck do you know <laughs> they're dead oh my god. What the fuck does that mean? And I guess I would ask him to look up the word suicide. I think in the dictionary, even in his day, it would probably suggest the concept of willful. Like, isn't that the definition of suicide? Like, willfully yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, taking otherwise your it's own murder. life? Like, or an accident or murder. How do you accidentally Otherwise, take your own life? Yeah. I, I mean, I guess you could, it happens, right? Like people are at the job, they cut off their hand and bleed to death. Or, I mean, there's accidents, but that's not suicide at that point. So that might be the first mention of the idea of it being a, you know, a mm. grievous sin. Yeah. Uh, which, which stayed in the church for a long, long time. I don't know where they're at right now with it, but it's, this idea of yeah. their presiding authority would have to, to judge the state of their mind after they're at, dead. After, yeah. Yeah. Well, no, we don't really think he did it on purpose. Uh, what the fuck? What the hell is that? <laughs> I, I'm at a loss. Wow. That's pretty that's, subjective. Yeah. That's wow. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> moving on, moving out of that nonsense. Yes. Well, again, a collection of humorous, sometimes shocking sometimes producing disbelief little tidbits thanks bro <laughs> damn damn all right guys well back to these 17 points so there was a guy by the name of floyd weston and for some reason yes i know call me whatever you want to call me i did some searching you did too dave I couldn't find the year. I'm sure if we committed more time to this, we could do some actual study level searching. What? I could not find the year that he gave this talk, Floyd Weston. I, and that's really odd to me because it seems like that would be pretty obvious. You know, usually when you get a recording or a list or something, right, a transcript, boom, there's the date. Right there. So for, I used yeah. it as a missionary in 1979, and yeah. it had already been around. So mm-hmm. you know, 70s, something. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. So look, Floyd Weston. I guess I don't even know. This is something I could have found as well, but I guess it really isn't the point. So maybe that's why I didn't think it was that important. Like who he was, as far as any station or calling he may have held in the church. This guy says he had some friends that he knew in college. They were all members of different Christian churches. One of them was an atheist. One of them decided at one point, you know what? I think God probably told us how to recognize his true church and that he would keep a true church in some form on the earth. And I think the Bible will tell us how to find it. So they spent this time together Studying the New Testament, which is interesting. Why not study the Old Testament? I guess because Christ himself, that period of time is what they were focusing on, came up with this list of 17 points, and they have references to scriptures of the New Testament that basically, in their minds, say, you know what, the true church, according to what Jesus said or his apostles taught, should include this. And so if you read through these 17 points, they're all mysteriously something that the LDS Church has, right? And so it proves 
according to Jesus himself or his disciples, that this is the only true church because it's the only one that has all 17 of these points, right? So this is kind of the story, and it started in a talk. I didn't know the background of it as much. Maybe you did, Dave, at the time, but it started from this talk from this guy. And these are things that people would carry with them. As we said earlier, you know, I had a copy of it. You you had a copy of it. I think you had the cassette tape of his talk even in your mission. And I would actually carry it with me and play it in an investigator's home and have to sit and listen through the whole thing and just, you know, anxiously wringing the hands thinking, oh, this this, this is going to get him. That's him. what we used it as. Yeah. If there were, again, objections that couldn't seem to overcome, let's get out, this out of our arsenal. Let me, let me pull mm-hmm. this out. And we had all kinds of things like that yep. that we used. And that it's really sad to think about the way that we did that shit. Manipulated people. Yeah. Yep. So here's the spiel on that. I'll share a little tidbit from Floyd Weston himself to show that he actually gave this talk. I'm not just blowing smoke out of my orifice. <laughs> and we'll dissect this a little bit because it's interesting. When I left, I wasn't seeing the 17 points as being referenced no. a lot anymore. But you did still see talks, including fairly recently, around the general topic, right? Around this topic that here's how you know that the Mormon church is the true church. These are signs of a true church that Jesus himself said would exist in his church. And these kinds of talks with those kinds of topics still surface now and then. It's not like it's abandoned as an overall topic. But the 17 points thing from Weston, not so much, at least what I saw. But So, Dave, did you want to interject anything? At this point, I want to uh, just share a little clip. I but, had one, yeah. Yeah, one thought real quick. I don't want to get into this too much. But, f- for instance, in First Nephi 13, we're being told there, Nephi is being told, there are saved but two churches, the true church of God and the church of the devil. So that's where that comes from why that becomes Mm. so significant to mormons Mm -hmm. including joseph smith coming out of the grove being told that every other church was false except the one that was about to be restored so it's it's us and them right with that was that was after he had the first vision where he came out of his bedroom right as opposed to the grove but yeah we'll we'll get that straight sometime Hey, have some respect. We just celebrated the 200th anniversary of those visions, plural. Uh, One of them, anyway. I'm so blessed that we had multiple. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, and Joseph was so humble that he said it was actually just one vision, even though there was like nine of them. But hey, it's okay. So I guess the point there, how significant is that to other people in other religions? In other words, do they sit there grimly in their pew at church on Sunday and think, oh, God damn, I'm, uh, well, excuse me, God. Uh, oh, gosh, gosh, I'm so <laughs> so happy that I'm in the one true church. Yeah. I don't see it. it I don't know. Of course, I, there's yeah. some of that, but yeah. not like with Mormons. No. And, and no. the damage that that has caused, what we can get into that, they cause themselves by making that claim. Yes. Yeah, I agree with you. It's damaging. It creates all sorts of issues mentally, emotionally, as well as logically. But I I think some of the more damning issues, in my opinion, to members of an organization who teach this concept, that number one, there is this idea that there's only one quote-unquote true church in the entire universe, and this is how you know Well, forgetting for a second the how you know piece, just the concept that there's only one truth is kind of harmful in a world where everybody has different opinions about truth. And I'm going to go ahead and bring it up now. And and this God that's behind this church waited 4,000 years, if you count biblical time, for his favorite son to come down and found this church. There were just kind of other things going on known as the Old Testament before that. And we also just let it disappear 
after a hundred years or so. But yes. in God's grace, he restored it. Yeah. So what what the hell is going on with uh, all of it, that? It's just all sorts of problematic logic, right, around it. And the fact that God having this omnipotence and omniscience, all power and all knowledge, past, present, and future, to allow people on the earth to basically fuck up his plan. Now he has to wait through the dark gate. Now he has to restore his truth again. Damn bastard people, you know, I wish they didn't bind me so much and I could actually be God, right? I mean, this whole, <laughs> it's just so stupid. Anyway, guys. I hope you can Yeah. yeah how ridiculous. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Is. Here's three and a half minutes or so of Floyd Weston introducing what happened. Okay, this is kind of like the story behind the 17 points. Here we go. The Gideon Society, uh, generally in places of public abode and other places where the public gather, generally place a copy of the Bible in one of the drawers. Any of you that have stayed in hotels and motels uh, in traveling have seen copies of the Bible placed there by the Gideon Society. And this particular day we returned to this dormitory and, uh, and he opened the drawer and took out a copy of the Bible. Okay, he is one of his friends, one of Floyd Weston's friends in this group of friends that he's talking about that are different religions and whatever. And this particular friend had a photographic memory, by the way, to make the story more interesting. And so he was ideal to kind of lead the charge of this study because every page he read, he could remember all the details. So he's, he's already creating something that's going to look bulletproof by the time he's done creating it. Yeah, that's right. So here we go. There was quite a motley assembly of us there, than the five of us. I happen to be a Methodist boy, a fellow by the name of Donald Stonebreaker, who was a colonel in the Air Force in charge of meteorological uh, service up in the continent of Greenland. I understand he's soon to be a general. Don Stonebreaker was a Presbyterian. Dunbar was a Roman Catholic. Williams was a, an Episcopalian. And one fellow, Glassy, that we had there said, there is no God. He was an atheist. So we were quite a, quite a cross-section as far as religious philosophy is concerned. Dunbar took the Bible out and he opened it to a place, the book of Ephesians, that impressed all of us, particularly him, where it said there shall be one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. He got to talking about the myriad of churches that existed in the world, and he said, you know, I'm convinced that, uh, that somewhere in the world is the church that the Lord organized. He wasn't altogether uh, completely happy with his church. And with this, he went out in the hallway and he pushed in, about 10 minutes later, a big, long blackboard. As I recall now, it was 16, 17 foot long on casters. You've probably seen the type. had three sections to it. You could write on both sides. He pushed it into the room. And then he took out the Bible and he went through it a page at a time for the next, oh, it was about seven and a half or eight weeks, about two months. Okay, just a couple quick thoughts. Jesus never really organized a church. <laughs> no, and we'll talk about that later because that's one of the and points. That, but that's New, yeah. New Testament. If you go through something to be aware of here, the, oh, there's a hundred things going on. He taking things out of context, yeah, making assumptions about the meaning of certain verses, kind of the same thing. And then we'll go on with this list of fallacies and shit that's going on. Oh, yeah. There. Yeah. And the idea that he studied the Bible one page at a time, well, he should probably have clarified that. The New Testament. Okay. One page and at and a time. What, how yeah. were his other studies going? Was he spending all of his time on this? It made it sound uh, like... I think he said he, they spent like... I don't know, man. Let's finish here. He went through it a page at a time, taking only those instances where our Heavenly Father or where Jesus Christ was speaking or being directly quoted, and he copied down there evidences, classified evidences, where anyone, whether they could work a slide rule or whether they were a doctor, any person could take these evidences and go out and recognize, identify the church that the Lord speaks of in the scriptures. And again, Heavenly Father's quotes, I think there's like one. <laughs> At the, At the baptism of Jesus. So I guess he really means just Jesus. So he kind of flubs yeah. there. But anyway, let's... At the end of about... And I remember all during the time, if you dared rub up against this board, you were in real trouble. Dunbar really uh, flipped his cork. 
at the end of seven and a half or eight weeks, he had all these scriptures, but I'll never forget them. He, uh, he started off by quoting that there should be just one church. He said that he did not, he, he gave us a little dissertation. What he did, he went downstairs and got one of the secretaries, gave her, as I recall, 35 cents a piece, which was a lot of money then. And on five by seven file cards on both sides, she typed up the contents as he had recorded on this blackboard. He gave each one of them to us, and he said, I'd like to make a suggestion now that we take these evidences and we go out and we look for the church. We look for the church that is described in this that I've been able to extract from the scriptures. Well, I was kind of interested. This interested me somewhat. I was happy in my church, very active. And I looked it over and he commenced this discuss with us the fact that he did not want to to look for the church of Wycliffe or, or the church of Luther or the church of Hust or Hus or Wesleyan. He was looking for the church of Jesus Christ. So that's his story of how this began. And he talks about how they would go out. That's the Wednesdays and Sundays thing or Thursdays and whatever yeah, it was. To, and they'd go out as a little group and they'd go attend these different churches and they would kind of question the pastors and talk to them, you know, about these 17 points. And they found some churches that had some points, but not the others, and on and on and on. And, and so the story goes, they didn't really find it while they were in college together, but they promised each other they'd keep looking, right? And then they find each other later in life. It's like, you know, whatever drama story you want to think of they found each other later in life and all of them including the atheist had become members of the mormon church because they had found that it contained all the 17 points so So this this is the point i think michael to bring up those fallacies that you discussed with me earlier where you start with the end in mind because you just described the process Mm -hmm. and what it was they did and what the hell is this Pink Floyd guy really doing here? <laughs> Pink Floyd. <laughs> yeah, so guys, there's so many problems with this. And Floyd actually follows a pattern that the general authorities must have some secret school that they attend <laughs> where they learn all the fallacies, all the logical fallacies that you could employ which you would normally be criticized for if you were like in a kind of a legitimate, you know, professional debate, for example, and you were trying to prove, I don't know, the existence of global warming or something like that. And you brought forth your evidence and people would pick you apart if you were to employ some of these common logical fallacies, especially in whatever, organized scientific research, that kind of thing. You would be picked apart by fellow colleagues, you know, in science and so forth for employing these. However, it seems to be the opposite in the Mormon church, where general authorities will regularly use these logical fallacies, because I guess it's okay when you're talking about religion. Because, again, religion does not rely on the logical mind or critical thinking. Yeah. Yeah. How many times are we going to say that? But that that's it. And so they get away with it. Yeah. So that's the member's fault. Yeah, right? I guess when you're talking about esoteric or subjective topics like, quote-unquote, the spirit, right, or feelings or emotions, you're okay using these fallacies. Yeah. So you'll recognize a lot of these, right? And a lot of them are very similar. They have nuances that differentiate them, I guess. But So one of them is begging the question. You've heard this used before. I'm not going to pronounce the Latin correctly here, but it's something like petitio principi or something, which basically means you're providing what is essentially the conclusion of the argument as its premise. That's exactly what he's doing here. Right. So, for example, an organic food advertisement that says organic foods are safe and healthy foods grown without any pesticides, herbicides, or other unhealthy additives. Use of the term unhealthy additives is used as support for the idea that the product is safe. Circular reasoning, circulus in demonstrando, probably a terrible Latin (laughs) (laughs) pronunciation there. The reasoner begins with what he or she is trying to end up with. 
So that's sometimes yeah. called assuming the conclusion, right? Or affirming the antecedent. Mm-hmm. So these 17 points exist in the church. So I'm going to use them as proof to see if the church is true. Well, you're starting and, with the and, conclusion in mind. Yeah. By the way, I, I meant to mention this earlier. The mm-hmm. fact that the guys in the group are all different is very convenient mm-hmm. because that means that whether you were formerly Lutheran, atheist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Catholic, you're all going to end up with this ultimate conclusion. That's not a chance. Come on. Oh, Come yeah. On. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's all sorts of versions of this, guys. Cum hoke ergo propter hoke, whatever that pronunciation that like is. A rock band. Yes. Latin for with this, therefore because of this. So correlation uh-huh. implies causation. Uh, cause and effect, coincidental correlation, correlation without causation. Basically, it's the assumption that because there is a correlation between two variables, that one caused the other, right? So th- all sorts I, of shit. I see shit. that all the time. Yeah, yes. all sorts of shit yeah. going on here. So again, regularly criticized and discounted in the scientific community, these kinds of techniques are evidently not only employed, but celebrated in conversations from the leaders of the church or from people like this guy. That's why we wonder if he didn't become a general authority. (laughs) And I didn't look that up. I don't think he did. But, you know, look, this guy, I don't know if you remember Paul H. Dunn, and we won't spend a lot of time on this because I want to pick apart these 17 points. But Paul H. Dunn, this guy reminded me of him a lot. So I did hear Dunn. Dunn was popular mostly in the 70s, right? Into the late 70s, early 80s. He had these war stories. He was one of the 12, David? Or was he... No, 70. 70, right. I I always forget that. Anyway, it was proven later, and he admitted it after it was proven, of course, that most of his stories were just bullshit, right? They were just made-up drama to try to emotionally move the audience faith-promoting stories that never actually happened. Right? And Weston uses sensationalism. He does. You, you, yeah. you're, if you're not listening to Paul H. Dunn, that style was pretty common. Mm-hmm. In other words, you're so drawn in by the delivery and the charisma of the speaker, you're not even paying attention to whether the message is even logical. No, no. Yeah, and then, of course, you're going to, quote-unquote, feel the Spirit at one point when you're listening to his speech, which means you're going to feel emotion or elation or something, and then you're going to associate that with the truth, erroneously, because as we all know through our lives, through sad experience or not, feelings of a certain kind don't always mean that what you're experiencing is something you could call true or reliable or trustworthy, right? It just means that it created a feeling within you, (laughs) which you recognize, right? You're like, wow, okay, that that felt pretty cool. But it doesn't mean I'm going to base my life on that, right? Like, that's a huge leap. I'm thinking of jo- yeah. real quick. I do this shit constantly. George of the Jungle, when he's talking to the monkey, the ape, and the ape asks him, "Are you having special feelings for you know whatever the young lady's name is?" He, <laughs> and he says, "George having special feelings right now." <laughs> That's all it is. It, it, it's actually chemically based. Yeah, it is. It, it is. is. We can have a whole episode on those chemicals. So here's the thing, man. Here's the 17 points. I'm going to introduce 20 points, which I think are hilarious, that our brother Richard Packham (laughs) threw out there. And we'll just pick through. There's so many, right? We're not going to be able to talk about each of these in depth, but I think there's some interesting observations we could make. So the 17 points, he says his friends got together, or this one guy, I guess, who was this you know brilliant genius, whatever, went through and discovered are as follows. Christ organized the church, that's point number one, which I think is debatable, but again, well, (laughs) while he was alive anyway, I don't think there was such a thing as a church where people would organize and go to a place on one day and listen to him teach and, you know, pass the sacrament, whatever, man. There was no church. It started after he died. Anyway, we'll go on. The church must bear the name of Jesus Christ. The church must have a foundation of apostles and prophets. It must have the same organization as Christ's church. 
Well, that's a broad statement. That shouldn't yeah. be a separate thing. It must claim divine authority. It must have no paid ministry. It must baptize by immersion, not sprinkling or anything. It must bestow the gift of the Holy Ghost by the laying on of hands. It must practice divine healing. It must teach that God and Jesus are separate and distinct individuals. It must teach that God and Jesus have bodies of flesh and bone. The officers must be called by God. The church must claim revelation from God. It must be a missionary church. It must be a restored church. It must practice baptism for the dead. Okay, that one is completely taken out of context in Corinthians. We talked about that before in the Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead. Yeah, that's totally fucked up. And then 17, by their fruits you shall know them. Well, that alone would prove the Mormon church is true. (laughs) (laughs) Whoopsie daisy. (laughs) Behind the curtain. (laughs) By their fruits. And that totally conflicts with another statement you guys will probably remember in the church. When someone acts like an asshole or treats you like a dick, someone invariably will say to you, hey, you know what? Remember, the church is true. The members are not. Something to that effect, right? Like the members are imperfect and they're going to be dickheads sometimes. But remember, the church is not the problem. The church is true. The members are just, you know, faulty and weak. What about by their fruits you shall know them? How does that work? Yeah, so anyway, I'm already picking apart one of them. <laughs> we'll share 20 points at the end from Packham because I think they're hilarious. And they're equally supportable in the Bible, by the way. <laughs> Again, it- Come on. It's obvious. Once you give this example from this letter sent to Packham or whatever it was, it's like (laughs) if you had a third group, you'd probably get a third list. That's right. That's right. We all know, and this is a problem and leads to all sorts of issues, including the obvious reality that there are hundreds of different evangelical sects and different Christian, you know, organizations. There's so many conflicts or incongruous or contradictions in the Bible teachings that you can't pick a list that doesn't contradict another list, basically. Uh, That's one of the issues here. But let's talk a little bit more. I'm going to scroll through. I'll send you guys this link maybe on our website so you can check it out if you want. Lots of people have picked apart this 17 list. 17 list? (laughs) 17 points. Uh, And so... Here's one of them, and this is the one I'll give you a link to. One of these guys who picked through the 17 points presents not only the 17 points, but a lot of the claims and statements made in Floyd Weston's talk that he references. So one of the things is this. Here's the summary. Five friends attending college hear Albert Einstein speak. Einstein gives his belief in God. The five friends return to their dorm and begin to map out what the true church of God would have to include. Eventually, the friends come up with 17 points of the true church. They all separate. World War II happens. Years later, they all meet up. One had died in the war. I forgot about that. Four had gone off to find the true church based on their research. All four had joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The one who died in the war was probably the atheist. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah, get rid of that fucking atheist. However... This guy says, the body of evidence suggests that it never happened at all. Uh-oh. Oopsie. So let's start with the fact that they claim during his talk, he claims that Albert Einstein was was speaking at Caltech and that they heard him. They stood out in the hallway and they heard him speak. So it says, it is a fact that Albert Einstein was at Caltech in the 1930s. As the school's website explains, Einstein was a visiting professor at Caltech for three winter terms only, 1931, 32, and 33. When Einstein decided to settle in the United States permanently, he accepted an appointment at Princeton University. However, according to his obituary, Floyd Elmer Weston was born May 21st, 1921, which means that he would have been between 10 and 12 years old when he was a student there. Uh Uh-oh. 
those damn dates. <laughs> it sounds like a, a Joseph Smith problem. It kind of is, isn't it? Further, there's also no record of Einstein speaking at Caltech after leaving the school for his commission at Princeton. Further, since Einstein's health was failing after the war, a cross-country trip from Princeton to Caltech, which most likely at the time would have been via train in the post-war 1940s to mid-1950s, for an undocumented speaking engagement is highly improbable. So yeah, Einstein probably didn't speak there and they probably didn't hear him say anything. He goes on, there were no collaborating witnesses. Another problem with Weston's story is the lack of collaborating witnesses. Continuing from the same source, quote, in his story, Weston only identified one of the people in the study group with first and last names. The rest are only identified by first names. Dick found the one identifiable member of the study group in the alumni records and made contact. The guy had never heard of Weston, was not LDS, <laughs> and certainly was not part of any study group. <laughs> oh, uh, here's another source. Here's what we know to be true about his story. It was first told by Floyd Weston. He claims that he was one of the four college students. He attended Caltech, and Albert Einstein did speak there, although some claim that Weston was a student several years after the Einstein visit. Floyd Weston never denied the story and died still claiming the story to be true. The life event was mentioned in his obituary. Does dying still claiming the story to be true sound familiar? Mm. Has anybody else done that where their story was false? Last word from their lips. Uh, we talked about oh, this. Oh, right? it's true. We talked about this, right? Cult leaders have yeah. died claiming their thing was true. It doesn't mean it was true, folk. That's... A logical fallacy as well. Just because somebody dies never recanting a story they told doesn't mean the story was true. It's not proof. It just means they don't want to look like a liar even when they die, <laughs> right? Who would want to look like a liar? Anyway, yeah. anyway, did Weston recant? It's possible. So it says, Floyd Weston never denied the story, died still claiming the story to be true. However, shortly after this, Weston was invited to speak at a fireside in our stake, says one person. When Dick heard this, he told the stake president what he had found. When Weston arrived, he was asked to meet with the stake president, who confronted him with Dick's findings. Weston confessed that he had made up the story and was sent packing. This happened in San Jose <laughs> South Stake. Well, I have some no sympathies way. about how difficult it must be to untangle a web of deception. I think it is irresponsible to deliver this talk as he did to a recent group of new mission presidents at church firesides and to continue to sell his tape. Yes. And so that's hearsay, right? Could have happened, could not have happened. It's interesting. So the internal confirmation bias speaks for itself in the 17 points. Define it this way. You only count the hits and ignore the misses for your predetermined favored position. Exactly. That's yeah. one of the ways you could do this. So let's talk about these a little bit. Let's take them one by one, Dave, and we'll kind of go back and forth here so we can kind of get through them all quickly. Christ organized the church, number one. Yeah, yeah it's purely subjective. Uh, people it. make the church. Christ didn't because Christ's church was made up of individuals who have trusted in Christ totally for their salvation. It would be erroneous to view any particular building, organization, or denomination as, quote, the true church. Uh, but there's no evidence, as I said. He talks about a church, right, David? I don't know why the word yeah. church is used in some of those phrases. We talked about uh, that briefly. The yeah. New Testament, again, is Greek and translating from the Aramaic. So there's a, there's a problem right there to begin with. Yeah, there is. The church must bear the name of Christ is point number two. By their reasoning, the Mormon church must have been in apostasy for at least four years, because for a time it was called the Church of Latter-day Saints from 1834 four, four to 1838. Years, four to yeah. So, oops, four years of apostasy... <laughs> Four years of not being Christ's church, and then all of a sudden they include the name Jesus Christ. Paul addresses the church of the Thessalonians at one point, just as an example, who were believers in Christ. But I guess they were in apostasy because the name of the church was the church of the Thessalonians. So it's just bullshit, right? I mean, whatever. Most of these are just absurd when you compare it to the biblical verses. The church must have a foundation of apostles and prophets. Well, and 
yeah. the church outside of Mormons claim, some claim the gift of prophecy, mm -hmm. but none claim to have apostles and prophets. Right. Uh, right. There are, there actually, there's disciples in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. um, well, and, and upon this rock, you'll build my church, Peter. There's an assumption there. Yep. That's the assumption that the Catholic Church uses for their line of authority, right? Back to Peter. Yeah, there's a verse, For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, in Deuteronomy. Christ himself is the, quote, prophet who guides his church. There's all sorts of verses that are the antithesis of this, right? That would say, well, you could equally argue that there are no apostles and prophets, and it's still Christ's church. Number four, the true church must have the same organization as Christ's church. And that means what? Uh, What's the point to the title of the podcast? Yeah, it, if Mormonism emulates the structure of the early church, says this one source, where in the Bible is there any mention of multiple high priests, Relief Society presidents, Second Quorum of the 70s, stake presidencies, Ward Bishop Bricks? Where are the Mormon pastors and evangelists? Those are titles that are mentioned in the Bible. So you cherry-pick the ones that fit your church, and you say, oh, see, the church needs this, and you ignore the others that are mentioned in the New Testament. Right? That's what's going on there. A little bit of cherry-picking. Number five, the church must claim divine authority. Um, completely subjective totally subjective and by the way they yeah. used hebrews as the reference there and if you read that chapter that verse is taken completely out of context yeah yeah completely no out of man context man taketh authority un unto himself save he's called as was aaron that yeah it's a different subject folks yeah that if you read the verses before and after it heaven forbid you'll get a little context again mm -hmm. cherry picking a single verse out of a a story or a message that was about something else. The true church must have no paid ministry. Whoops. Yeah. How, lo how long did we have paid for 30, 40 years? Yep, yep. You read the snippet historically when the, the leaders eventually decided to stop paying local authorities like bishops and stake presidents and only pay the the 12 and, I guess, general authorities in general. Uh, <laughs> That's convenient. Yeah, but... Are the 12 not part of the ministry? I would think they would argue otherwise. They're the leaders of the ministry, yet they're paid. So yeah. the revealing issue here is when Weston gave this talk, it was not largely known in the church, at least the lay membership, that the brethren were paid. That's come out recently, yeah. right? And so point number six is basically blown out of the water with what we know today. So basically it would say the Mormon church is not Jesus' church because we do have a paid ministry in the general authorities. So, whoops. Take any one of them, that's enough to negate. Oh yeah, exactly. Any one, any one of these, yeah. The church must baptize by immersion. Well, this guy argues that baptism is an outward expression. It basically shows it's an outward expression that you do believe in Christ and you're following him, but it's not required to be saved, quote-unquote. Christ saves, baptism doesn't, basically, is the quote here. Eh, whatever, right? We do see from the verses that Christ went down into the water and rose up out of the water, right? He was immersed. There's history where we can follow that, what, the evolution, I guess you would say, of baptism, the Nicene Council, etc., some churches were baptizing by immersion, some were not. Eventually, it was given up as an absolute requirement. We know that the Catholic Church sprinkles other churches immerse other than just the Mormon Church. That's, That's water well, conservation. Yeah. The Baptists, right? The Baptist churches immerse, do they not? That's one of the things that makes them, quote-unquote, Baptist churches. Yes. Whatever. The true church must bestow the gift of the Holy Ghost by laying on of hands— this guy gives references where the Holy Ghost was received without the laying on of hands. <laughs> the true church must practice divine healing. Look, many churches claim they do practice it and get results. So it's subjective, right? We could do a whole episode on healing. Yeah. If he dies, it's God's will. If he's healed, it's God's will. God always wins. 
Yep, yep. Not to mention the televangelists who claim to, you know, they have their buddies in the crowd and they heal them, suppose, whatever, man. The true church must teach that God and Jesus Christ are separate and distinct individuals. Total convolution around the Trinity. Joseph Smith used to teach the Trinity, then he himself changed his ideas on it. The Book of Mormon teaches an evangelical concept of the Trinity, hmm. as members it's often forget. Several places. Yeah. And then later, the church changed their teaching on that, even though the Book of Mormon still teaches the concept of the Trinity. The true church must teach that God and Jesus Christ have bodies of flesh and bone. Again, Where did they get that from the New Testament? No I, clue. No clue. It rests mostly on the vision. The Well, one of the visions, right? Where Joseph says he sees God the Father and Jesus. Wait. Yeah. And the angels that were there. Wait, no, who was there? Oh, never mind. Never mind. The officers must be called of God, number 12, another subjective point. All cultists believe they're called of God. So of course. Who's called of God? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? The church must claim revelation from God. Again, another subjective point. A lot of popular cultists claim that that's what they were doing, is receiving revelation, which is why they formed their group. Who's telling the lie and who's telling the truth? It's completely subjective. Go back to, I think, our third podcast. Have you had a revelation lately? Not lately, nope. evidently. Well, yeah, Rusty's getting a bunch of them, right? About the length of church and all sorts of crazy important stuff. The true church must be a missionary church. Lots of Christian churches are missionary churches. The true church must be a restored church. The argument here is you can't restore something that wasn't lost. <laughs> so... Jesus himself said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church in Matthew. I mean, whatever. Let's cherry pick. The true church must practice baptism for the dead. This is the whole The Grateful Dead episode that David and I went through. That was completely taken out of context. Yep. By their fruits you shall know them. Again, we just talked about how the church experience for many people shows that that's a bunch of bullshit as well. We flew through those, I know. You can look up stuff. I'll send you this link like I talked about. Here's the 20 points, Dave, that I wanted to share at the end because these are absolutely hilarious. So let's take 20 different points, and I'll actually post a link to this as well because this is hilarious. You guys can look. They all have verses that correspond to them, right? So it must be true, right? So here's 20 points really quickly that according to the New Testament, this should be true about the teachings of the church and about the members to find the true church. Okay, ready? There will be no physical, visible coming of the kingdom of God. The celebration of the Lord's Supper includes bread and wine, not water. Marriage and divorce are frowned upon. The Jewish temple ritual will be observed. The church takes priority over family. Women must cover their head while praying. Eunuchs will have special respect in the church. <laughs> Only two commandments, love God and love thy neighbor, not any other commandments. They hold all things in common ownership. They do not sin, talking about members now. They can drink poison without harming themselves. They do not strike back if you strike them. If you ask to borrow anything from them, you don't have to return it. <laughs> they never have to hire movers or earth-moving equipment or use UPS. They can literally move anything by the power of God. <laughs> they have no retirement plan, saving accounts, or food supplies stored away. Uh-oh. And no possessions. Uh-oh. They never pray in public. They are like sheep or children. They do not go to a doctor when ill, but heal each other with prayer. Their children are not rebellious. If they are, they kill them. <laughs> and they do not die. That's the last point. So, yeah, about these 20, this guy said, hey, you know, my friends and I got together during college. We created this list of 20 things. I have to confess I never found a church that fulfilled all 20 of these points. Recently, I happened to meet another member of the group whom I'd not seen since our days together. He made the effort to track down every member of that original group. Here's the amazing part of our story. Every single one of us had independently come to exactly the same conclusion. There is no true church. <laughs> How about that? How about that? That's our, that's our point here today. Get to the point. Get to the point. What's your point? Ah, so, guys... Contradictory teachings, subjective statements, a story made up by a guy that sounded like Paul H. Dunn, many points of which have been disproven. What else can we say? 
you know, so that's again, he's right in the ranking of a, a general authority, able to completely lie and still sleep pretty well at night, I guess. I suppose, as long as the profits from selling his tapes kept coming in, right? You bought one. <laughs> I did. I did. Damn it. The devil. Damn you, David. Well, yeah. you know where I'm headed anyway when this life is over. That's right. Like the ACDC song, right? Highway to 